Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 76. It's 1984 and the Special Forces have been busy, as you heard last episode. The waterborne operations were on the go, but so too were ops into southern Angola, with 3-2 Battalion changing their colours, so to speak. They began to patrol the area dressed in SWAPO uniforms. So much for the SADF's promise to adhere to the terms of a joint monitoring commission where they had promised to pull out all their forces. It became a game of cat and mouse between the SADF and Fafla about who would be tripped up in the lying game first. The special forces were increasing what were known as pseudo-operations, which the Salu scouts had used to great effect during the Rhodesian Bush War, or the Zimbabwean War for Independence, depending on your political position. A large number of the scouts had made their way south to join the SADF and were now integrated in different units. By August 1984, Swapu had declared the far east of Avambaland a liberated area, with cadres roaming around the bush and villages freely visiting the kraals and receiving food and support from the locals. They also collected intelligence from villages, and the SADF's Hearts and Minds campaign, which elements of 3-2 had tried so hard to initiate, had now failed. The Rekis had a new role to play here. The vegetation in this part of the border region is extremely dense, with large thickets of acacia thorn trees, and the going is hard. The sand is soft in most places along the rivers, but this also made it far easier to track Swapu when they crossed the cutline. But what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Swapu could also track their special forces. The SADF troops left a very specific track, carrying their heavy packs and with their boots clearly demarcated along the trails. Swapo, meanwhile, were walking inside villages, living cheek by jowl with the civilians, often barefoot like the Viet Cong. The young herders from these settlements played a kind of game with the SADF. When Swapo had passed by, they would herd their cattle, sheep or goats across the insurgents' tracks. The South Africans had to change their modus operandi, which they began doing. Five Reki had moved into the Ngongwa region and adopted a new tactic. They'd be operating in larger groups with 3-2 battalion, in sections or even platoon-sized groups. This sounds counterintuitive until you hear what else they were up to. There would be no furtive anti-tracking and deception movement. It was going to be regular infantry-like behavior through the bush. But they did try to avoid the kraals and stayed away from the known trails used by civilians and then began moving frequently. They then targeted kraal for special attention. One of the men would approach this kraal, conducting close reconnaissance, then report back. But eventually, the 3-2 battalion troops indicated they weren't very happy doing this. So they changed their modus operandi again, breaking the larger company into two, a small group that would be based alongside the paths in and out of the villages, and a larger group bivouacked some distance away, guarding the rucksacks in a temporary base. A number of skirmishes took place during this period. Small-scale contacts, really, but one thing was abundantly clear. Swapu was in control of the villages along this stretch, close to the Caprivi. Further west, the SADF had set up a special forces area in Ondangwa called Fort Rev, where the pseudo-operations concept was being fully exploited. It was a secret base alongside Ondangwa Air Force Base, and it was full of ex-Swapu soldiers. These men were known as masters of the bush, despite what the SADF soldier thought about them. The Rekis had a completely different view of their enemy, and were now working with dozens of Swapu who'd switched sides. These men knew the area intimately, 
and could speak the local dialects. They were smuggled in and out of this secret base for obvious reasons. I'll explain in a moment why they were in a lose-lose situation. When a swamper insurgent was captured, they were well treated. Then they'd be sent to this base dressed as a civilian or even in SADF uniform. Then they'd be interrogated in special rooms without violence. Many had been led to believe that the Bura would torture them to death, but this didn't happen. Some arrived wounded, and they were treated with great care by the medics. This was not expected, and had a major impact psychologically on these Swapo fighters. Remember, for most, they'd be left to bleed to death by the insurgents if they were wounded in action, or sometimes they were even shot out of hand by their own men. They were being trained by Soviets and others who followed the communist model of fighting men and women. You are basically suicide warriors who die for a cause. So once they realized that the SADF were treating them like individuals, they changed their tune, or most did. But there was another reason. They knew that if they escaped or returned to Swapu, they'd be shot as spies or suspected of being sellouts, so they really had no choice. The SAD of treatment of these wounded just made it easier for them to change sides. The South Africans also paid them well. They received the same danger pay and R&R as other soldiers. Their benefits were many compared to the scavenging they'd been doing as Swapo. Incredibly, most agreed to change sides and fight for the SADF, and even more incredibly, if they had recovered from their wounds, they would often be back in the bush fighting for the South Africans against Swapo within a month. Sometimes it was even two weeks. I've mentioned repeatedly through the series that the border war on the surface appeared to be a simple battle between whites and blacks, but this is not what special operations was all about. It was kill or be killed, and often the enemy turned out to be your friend when they changed sides. It's true that none of the special forces fully trusted these turned Swapo guerrillas and vice versa, by the way. But it's also true that they fought side by side when the chips were down. When the rounds began flying, it turned into fight or flight, and the ex-Swapo shot back at their former comrades. Of course, if they were captured by their former comrades, they would be shot anyway. So here... At Fort Rev in 1984, ex and Reckies gathered to fight together. Captain Dave Drew from 51 Commander was an expert at pseudo-operations. He could read the minds of these turned men and was profoundly skilled at motivating them to lead the SADF units back to where they had last deployed. The Special Force Commando also knew the names of the Swapo senior staff and dropped these names constantly, further frightening the ex-Swapo insurgents by threatening to send them back to Angola. So, by threat and cajoling by carrot and stick, the SADF ensured that most Swapo who were captured signed up for their new secret brigade. One of the Reckies who has written about this is Kurs Stadler. He had a long history of fighting on the border and ended up leading one of these sticks of turned Swapo guerrillas. It was a culture shock, as he writes. He was now using the tactics and style of Swapo, not the SADF. He was dropped off with a stick of eight at an unnamed area north of the cutline in 1984 without much preamble. The stick did not patrol in formation. They merely strolled along in single file, chatting away with weapons slung in all directions. When they reached the kraal, some would enter while the others continued on their way. Later, those who entered the kraal would catch up with goat meat and other food, including mahango or pap, 
corn-based porridge, which the men would stop and eat. They carried almost nothing except firearms and ammunition, and perhaps one or two tins of food, as well as water in case of an emergency. It was a ragtag existence, but highly effective, and a huge shock for the Special Forces men who'd been trained in the art of two-man teams silently moving through the bush like ghosts. Now they were wandering around the sandy bush like it was a Sunday hike. Standard operation kit turned into a small rucksack and Swapo's makeshift webbing. The white reckies had to wear Afro wigs cut to size so that it wasn't too ostentatious. They also applied dollops of what we know as black is beautiful, black camouflage cream to hide their origin. Some of the reckies adopted a far cleverer tactic and used brown cream and donned a large Swapo hat to cover their features even more effectively. They grew what they called a Sam Nujoma beard, and when they approached a village, the other men in the platoon would protect these reckies by standing in front of them so civilians couldn't see they weren't black. They smeared black as beautiful on their hands as well. They sometimes bumped into Swapo cadres, and amazingly, these reckies went unnoticed. And yet, all the reckies assigned to these ex-Swapo units slept, they say, with one eye open. Later, some of these reckies, such as Stadler, admitted that they alienated their fellow-turned-Swapo cadres by sleeping separately, afraid of being knifed in the night. The stresses involved were obviously immense. The reckies did not know whether or not these Swapo cadres would turn another 180 degrees and then shoot them. Their less-than-formal approach to discipline led to other challenges, as you can well imagine. I'll return to 51 Commando in future podcasts, but right now we need to move on. By September 1984, the Soviets had taken over command in Angola from the Cubans, and they'd been shocked into action by Fapla's defeat during Operation Ascari. The Soviets wanted to start a series of large-scale defensives with all the firepower at their disposal to crush UNITA in the east. The Cubans, however, preferred the Chinese way, the Viet Cong way, to adopt a classic counterinsurgency approach. The Russians began to taunt the Cubans for failing to stand up and fight, always darting about and avoiding full-scale clashes with the South Africans. All of this was true. Fidel Castro had told the Russians that his people were not going to obey any orders from Moscow, and the Soviet leaders never managed to make him. Soviet military doctrine is similar to the Russian military doctrine now, 40 years later. You can see from the invasion of Ukraine that this doctrine is both corrupt and riddled with inconsistencies. And so it was too, back in 1984. The CIA was in Angola at this time, monitoring UNITA, and they knew that the Russians fixated about carrying a war to their opponent's territory to destroy the military and political coalition facing them. That was, of course, in southeast Angola. The Russians believe that only a strategic offensive offers them victory, not a series of tactical victories leading to the enemy collapsing. This is all about loads of blunt instruments like artillery, shelling and vast bombardments, and then the complete destruction of the cities they approach. This was the mentality facing the South Africans, the SADF, in 1984, and would lead, eventually, to that major battle in 1987 called Quito Guanabari. The MPLA, meanwhile, was trying to hang on to their towns and in most cases had just given up on the countryside of southern Angola. Perhaps the most important difference of opinion, however, 
was about the control of the skies. The more aggressive Soviet attitude was built on the evaluation of the South African Air Force and its capabilities. Moscow scoffed, saying the SA Air Force was overestimated and that the South Africans were short of long-range bombers, and they also believed it was time to put more pressure on South African pilots. The blasting to pieces of Kangamba in 1983 had shocked the Angolans and the Cubans. Castro's men had fled in helicopters and by road, leaving Fapla to face the SADF alone. But the SA Air Force bombing had also changed the minds of the Angolan leadership and did lead directly to the Cubans sending another 5,000 troops to Africa. Moscow also dispatched 10 naval vessels and support ships, including an aircraft carrier, which docked in Luanda as a show of support. During 1984, SA Air Force Commander Brigadier General Dick Lord had been sent a top-secret document, which was an intelligence outline of the new Russian approach, and on the list was the Russians' comment about their need for more effective air power. Moscow was going to deploy their new air support system in two phases. Firstly, they would support the MPLA more closely, perhaps even using ground support. And second, they would increase air support in Zambia, possibly Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Moscow was basically considering setting up a prototype airbase in Angola with a possible opportunity to expand in the future. The Angolans, however, were distinctly unhappy with that suggestion. There was a prevailing sense these days to consider that Luanda was a kind of pet for the Russians, but it was not as simple as that. The Angolans didn't want the Russians to exploit them in a colonial sense, so there was always a tension between what Moscow wanted and what Moscow got. But the Air Force back in Pretoria viewed these snippets of intelligence very seriously indeed. So Major Johan Oppermann who worked in intelligence and Brigadier General Lord, decided to clear an entire wall in an office to construct a visual guide to what could be going on. Within a few short weeks, they had started to pull together a matrix of information and realized that something extremely important was taking place along the entire length of South Africa's northern borders. The air war concept that Moscow was developing took shape on this map. A new radar chain had been developed through the period, extending all the way into northern southwest Africa, most of Zambia and a broad area around Khabarone in Botswana. In the east, the Soviet radar system now extended all the way north of Pemba, across the border with Tanzania, into eastern Zimbabwe, and possibly the most worrying sign of all, into the high felt of South Africa, ending only a few kilometres east of Pretoria. However, there was a gap. One of the major gaps was in northern Botswana, just alongside the southwestern portion of Zambia, including part of the Caprivi Strip. This area near Livingston, Molobezi, and heading towards the Kaneni River was exploited by the SA Air Force as they sought to take action behind enemy lines. This radar extended from 2,000 feet above ground level to well over 40,000 feet, so the South Africans knew that if they came in extremely low and fast, there was a good chance radar would miss their entry over enemy territory. At night, the gap along the Zambian-Angolan border was exploited by the SAF or C-130 and C-160 transport aircraft flying missions in support of UNITA. Later, the Angolans and the Russians would aim at trying to seize the UNITA town at Mavinga. This would lead eventually to the battles of Quito Cornavali. Some inside the SADF believed that it was the gap in this radar shield that was the main reason for this strategy. But why did the Russians and the Cubans never enter southwest African airspace and bomb Grootfontein or Rundu 
or Ashikati, let alone Air Force Base Undangwa or any other target inside of Umberland. The SA Air Force publicly said it was because the Russians were afraid of them, but the reality was somewhat different. Attacking Southwest Africa was never part of Soviet doctrine. They were adhering very strictly to the strategic aims and bombing the SADF in Avamberland was not part of this broad strategy. Had they wanted to, things would have turned extremely messy, with the SAF was probably replying by bombing Luanda. There would have been raids as far south as Vintuk by the Russians, and after this, the gloves would have been off, and the Cold War could have become much hotter. After Operation Ascari, there was a major change in the border war. It shifted from a low-intensity insurgency to a fully-fledged conventional war. Swapo could not achieve its military aim, and the Russians knew this. The USS Cuba and the MPLA were going to pump vast amounts of heavy weapons into southern Angola in an attempt at overcoming the SADF. And this massive heavyweight threat shifted the SADF's view towards what was known as the Eastern Front north of Rundu in Kavango. The Western Front remained an insurgency where Swapo launched their cross-border invasions of men on foot in the classic Viet Cong style. But in the East, it began to look very different indeed. The civil war between UNITA and the MPLA in this area was about ideology, and the South Africans supported UNITA. There was a contradiction. While UNITA controlled over half the borderline between Southwest Africa and Angola and it meant the SADF's resources could be better spent elsewhere, it also meant the SADF were not in control of what UNITA was up to. Eventually and inexorably, the South Africans would be drawn into this conventional war in the East in the three final years of the border war. Before then, in September 1984, an audacious plan to blow up Angolan railway rolling stock, including locomotives, was on the cards. You'll hear about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the series' visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message on Twitter at Des Lothen. Until next, pass bait. Thank you.